Hey, Hannah, we're back for another episode of I'm Living Proof. Yes, we are. And for this episode, we met with James, who titled his letter, I'm Living Proof, We Carry Each Other. And it was a really inspiring letter and a really great conversation. Yes. And we have something very special for this episode. So usually you're used to hearing my voice interview our guests. This time, Hannah hosted. Hannah, how'd you like hosting and doing the interview for this episode with James? Well, I definitely have such an appreciation now for all of the hosting that you've done to this point. But in all honesty, it was really, it was great to really connect with James on that level. And yeah, and to like focus on asking him those questions. So yeah, it, it was awesome to, to be the host, but you know, something I'm I was a little actually nervous for, you know, because I haven't I haven't hosted. So yeah, it was it was a really good experience. Well, you did a great job. The listeners will be in for a treat. You had a very dynamic conversation with James. James takes us through a journey of substance use, uh, depression, fitting in at school, and then after seeking out treatment, uh, trying to get back into school after um, being away from a time and all of all of his challenges and success with that. Yeah, I took so much away from from his, from his letter and from his journey and from actually hosting this combo. So it was real fun. Want to remind our audience, as always, if you like this episode, remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, you can now do reviews on Spotify. So we just encourage if you've been listening there, go pop over and write us a review. It really helps to support our work. Absolutely. So I think it's time to hear from James, Hannah. Yeah, totally. Dear James, I know you never expected your first year of college to go this way. You started off in love with the new rush of friends and possibilities, and you were happier than ever. Within a month, you became inexplicably and severely depressed, though you didn't have the language to quite make sense of it. These emotions were new to you. You were confused as to why you were now numb to the things that used to make you feel so alive. Others around you could tell you weren't okay, but they did not have the tools to help you. On your second visit to the hospital for attempted suicide, a month after the first, you were put on an involuntary hold in the psych ward where you were diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Your school forced you to withdraw, its assessment corroborated by the well-being and counseling centers you've been required to work with. Because of the method of your attempts, you were told that to have a chance at readmission, you should go through a nine-month intensive outpatient program for substance abuse. Your parents enrolled you right away. You're ashamed each time you introduce yourself with, hi, my name is James, I'm 18, and I'm an alcoholic. You do this most days of the week at your group therapy sessions and Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. You feel with every fiber of your being that you should be in treatment for your mood disorder. Certainly not here, which you misconstrue as penance for reckless vulnerability in times when you should have said nothing. But your decisions did not lead you to this point. You are in treatment because you are hurting, because of things about yourself you cannot control, 
even if this feels like the wrong kind of treatment. And yet you feel such anger toward your friends for calling campus emergency medical services, even though they literally saved your life twice. You feel anger toward your school for deciding you needed time away to heal. You kept trying to make compromises, anything but being forced into treatment away from your support network of friends and back to a family with whom you silently agreed to pretend nothing was wrong. You feel your life may have been irreparably derailed. I promise these feelings of hurt will not last. These accusations of betrayal will turn into gratitude. But for now, because you're so frustrated at losing what you had, you've resolved to seize it back. You want to return to your university, even if just to prove everyone wrong. And so you've leaned into treatment. You're even taking it as an opportunity to learn from the innumerable stories of hardship your peers endured and the resilience and wisdom they cultivated. Although you're physically distant from the friends you made, you regularly call to catch up with many of them. Their belief in you carries you forward. Once you're admitted, you'll encounter others with similar stories and decide to become a mental health advocate through organizations and committees on campus. You'll write legislation outlining students' needs surrounding mental health resources. You will gain mental health literacy and an ability to be honest with yourself and others about your needs, practice self-care, and share with others what you've learned. You will renege your contempt for the well-being center, appreciating all the good it does and establishing a working relationship with the director. You will join both an educational group and a task force on substance abuse and take the brave step to share insights from your time in treatment. You also will struggle, make poor choices, and you will hurt people. Please do the hard work and take responsibility in the moment rather than in retrospect. After years on medication, you'll be weaned off at your senior year, but only months later, you'll experience your first hypomanic episode, feeling untouchable yet perpetually on edge, and your impulsivity and unfiltered speech will hurt people. Your mood will do a 180 and fall through the floor often leaving you on the verge of tears for no reason. You'll choose to return to the counseling center for the first time since you were mandated in your first semester, receive medication for bipolar disorder, and construct a wellness toolkit with your therapist. You'll have your first panic attacks at 22, but you'll experience them while among friends more affirming and understanding than you could have imagined. I owe all of my strength to where my past selves have been. Your adamant pursuit of betterment and fostering of healthy, mutually uplifting relationships will leave you beyond capable. Your hard-headedness is often your greatest strength. With hope and love, you at 22. James, thank you so much for being with us today and reading for us your beautiful letter. I was really, really touched by it and um, wanted to start off by just asking you, what was the experience of writing that letter like for you? Yeah, it, it allowed me to feel like my experience was cemented. I know a lot of times 
I try and reinterpret the things that have happened to me and maybe doubt like the severity of kind of my own actions and also externalities that have affected me. Uh, but putting it into words also kind of separated itself mm. from me um, and allowed me to kind of look at it as for what it is, yeah, yeah. objectively. Yeah, there's something so powerful about being able to write about our own experience and and tell it more in a narrative way. So I'm wondering, what was it like for you to read the letter aloud just now? I I don't usually read the things that I I write out loud, and it did feel mine, right? So when I wrote it, it did feel kind of like a story I was telling, but reading it, I own it. I think there's something so great about getting ownership over our own story, especially when we've gone through some hard times. So I want to dig into your letter a little bit more and just find out a little bit more about your spirit experience. So it sounds like, you know, you started college and you're having a fantastic time. And then, you know, it seems like the bottom kind of falls out. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the, the first symptoms of depression you were experiencing and kind of what it was like. I think we all know the experience of going through something really amazing, like a big change of life, like going to college. And then, you know, maybe our expectations aren't met or we're, we're facing hardship. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah, like, like I wrote, it was really confusing and not necessarily because uh, kind of my feelings changed so rapidly, but just because of the juxtaposition of uh, the way things were going in my life in general, and I had every reason to be happy, and so much of me was genuinely happy to get to do these things, be independent, make friends that I felt like were the most sincere that I'd ever had, even within such a short period of time, and yet. I did feel symptoms of depression that I kind of was frustrated with myself for kind of feeling in the time when I should have been happiest and much of me was. No. Yeah. I just, I think that's such a real experience of like, especially starting college, right. It's everyone's supposed to be having the best time of their lives, you know, allegedly, whatever we say about that college experience. And then I think yeah, sometimes it really can be the onset of symptoms for the first time for folks, and it can be such a challenging um, time uh, for people. For people, um, you go on and tell us a little bit more about your hospitalization experience. So, what was it like to go from that to needing hospitalization? Yeah, so the first time was more for physical care um, and I was kind of released in the morning um, and that in itself was really scary um, and after it um, the hospital had kind of a line of like communication with my university you know um, because similar things kind of happen with other students at the university and there were a lot of stipulations about um, what I was kind of uh, allowed to do um, and had to go to a mandated counseling. Uh, the second time, it was kind of like, um, 
again, the hospital was in communication with the university and they, I had to stay over the weekend because the resident psychiatrist wasn't available. Um, not to mention uh, the fact that an involuntary hold is uh, at least for 72 hours. And I think I've mentally blocked out a lot of it. Uh, and most of what I remember is kind of just being, you know, curled up on my bed, being mad at myself, uh, kind of none of the things, not even participating in any of the activities that uh, traditionally you hear about people doing in psych boards or like group therapy, uh, just kind of being so, so out of it uh, that I couldn't kind of process any sure. of it. And uh, once I was released, my kind of school stipulated that the hospital couldn't release me back to my on-campus housing, that uh, one of my parents had to fly out and kind of pick me up. Uh, it was only that I was allowed to kind of return to my room on campus and pack up what I could, take it with me back home, and they would mail me back the rest. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of that felt really cold, you know, even, even with my parents, their concern was mostly uh, for my, my academic success, you know, like, oh my gosh, how is he going to finish the semester? Uh, it was, you know, not, not long before Thanksgiving. So there was only a week and a half left of classes. And, you know, my mom and I, you know, met with the counseling mostly for the purpose of seeing how can he finish the semester? Um, you know, we had my dad on the phone to try and see like, you know, how can he, you know, be allowed to continue? Why does he have to go home? Um, and they agreed to let me finish my classes online um, and just had to have a period where I spent at least the next semester away. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, the university seeing experiences like that as a liability more than something that they have to, that they owe it to students to assist with, um, right? Like it's, it's kind of simpler to, if a student is presenting with uh, suicidality, especially after an attempt, they don't want that liability or publicity of kind of anything happening uh, on campus for them. I can see that being a really challenging experience. And I'm wondering just like internally, what was, what were you experiencing? I can see wanting to push and finish the end of the semester, but I'm sure there was also some emotional needs you were, you were trying to tend to at the same time. So how did, you know, how did, how did you find a balance there? I definitely did try to salvage what I could, like I, like I said, by just pushing through those, those last couple weeks in that finals period um, and did really well academically. I was just so disconnected between, again, my academic performance and just my emotional health and just ability to get through every day. Um, but I, to attempt some kind of balance, I did just try and, and see like how I could get through what had, what had happened to me and get back to some kind of baseline, especially wanting to go back to university too. Yeah. So it sounds like that there was some structure given to you about 
all right, well, if I go this far in treatment, then I also can come back and have this university experience, which am I hearing that right? That you yeah. wanted to get back to that, that social life and that place of the newness and, and the excitement that you were feeling in the beginning. Yeah, I kind of knew I couldn't really have that, uh, you know, for for reasons attached to what was probably trauma with with all of that. But I did kind of want to eventually return to that and less less uh, social life and more just supportive friends, which I had kind of been pulled away from. I really tried to justify why I shouldn't have to leave because uh, you know most of my closest friends had come to be at that university there, and I would be losing that network. And in fact, I I did get a lot worse in the months after I'd been sent home. You know, during that nine month period, it kind of took until the middle of it for me to start feeling better, you know, rather than keep feeling worse and, and spiraling and thinking, why, why am I here? Yeah, it, it did feel like I was, I was living in an afterlife in those months after I'd been sent home, both because of the, the change in, in kind of location the, the change in like how my my life was panning out day to day, but also thinking about what ifs, thinking about the fact that um, I I should have died according to uh, what my doctors said it had happened to me, and thinking, um, yeah, that I was kind of living in in some weird um, mode where I had to kind of live out some kind of penance for for bad decisions or something like I had written. Yeah. Yeah. That's a line that I actually have highlighted in your letter that I think it was really striking the first time I read it about certainly not here, which you construe as penance for reckless vulnerability in times when you should have said nothing. You want to say a little bit more about what you mean here? I had thought a lot about Again, more more what ifs. What if I had been less communicative about the severity of of how I felt? What if I I hadn't kind of like cried out for for help? Would would I have ended up uh, being being put in treatment? Yeah, risk taking decisions that kind of worsened my kind of like emotional state. Uh, exacerbated depression and yeah in, in general just kind of like what if I what if I hadn't you know been so been so vulnerable with my with my friends um, I see that differently now of course that well first off it was it was so helpful to to have had that uh, trust in in friends and that you know in every scenario they were going to do the, the right thing uh, for me, but also it kind of would it would have ended up coming to a head anyway, um, regardless of you know if some minuscule decision had been different, right? It was it was kind of that bad. I'm curious then what you know in this time period that you're describing is this like after life time period, which you're really painting an image for me, and I. I think it might resonate with folks in our audience, you know, um, life after an attempt is very different. What, 
But what were the things that started to make things shift for you that you could then begin to start, you know, seeing these things in retrospect and saying, oh, no, this vulnerability that I shared with my friend was actually a good thing? Yeah, I think I think that acceptance came much later after I had started on, on the mend. But kind of, I think what changed that that direction, that trajectory was first off time in that having a separation through through time from that experience allowed it allowed me to see it more for for what it was and also i think kind of being closer to a point where i felt like i was making making progress in my recovery and being closer to being able to come back to university and by making progress in recovery i don't mean kind of, you know, accepting myself as, as an alcoholic. Um, and I, I can touch more on that in a minute, but more so kind of accepting, yeah, accepting again, what had happened to me. And, but I think within my, within that kind of recovery outpatient program, I felt that whole time, like I wrote that I shouldn't have been there that I should have been in treatment for a mood disorder. And again, regretting decisions like uh, the method of, of my attempts, it was definitely like what seemed easiest, what I kind of knew. Um, and in that recovery, I was kind of, it was interesting. I was just surrounded by people whose experiences felt more, more, you know, deserving of, of treatment than mine. Not that I, I felt inadequate, but, you know, more of why am I here specifically, right? So many of the people were, you know, like three times my age mm -hmm. and people had been using for years and years. And here I would have to explain, yeah, I, I used for like three months and any kind of unhealthy behaviors that I you know, definitely develop. I wanted to attribute more to having a mood disorder, even though I do see that without kind of uh, being interrupted with treatment there or being sent home, it could have developed into something uh, bad, but it kind of seemed, uh, I guess, a little ridiculous to me to, to be in, in outpatient for nine months after, after using for, uh, abusing for like three months. Yeah. Uh, I guess like as, as a first experience, but I did, I did kind of not long into it, see like, I'm going to be here anyway. So there's a lot of wisdom to be gained here. You know, I shouldn't feel uh, like, you know, rather than looking at it from a perspective of I'm so out of place here, I can't relate to any, anything of what people are saying here, rather seeing people sharing their experiences as just general wisdom taken out of context of uh, substance abuse in general. And yeah, like, you know, the ability to foster healthy relationships with people, um, just hearing stories of people's development through life, thinking of, uh, my potential, uh, you know, future in a career, uh, 
you know, having children and things like that and how to kind of approach that. And I think I did come out of it with a lot, especially a lot of perspective about definitely how much of my life was left ahead of me, shifting from that perspective of being in an afterlife to just, just having been at the beginning, right? Just at the very start of adulthood, I was still 18 and I kind of, rather than looking back, I kind of had to, was, was shown like how many things I had left to kind of do in that, you know, those nine months were just going to be such a short period of what I had left. And if I kind of grit my teeth through it, that I'd be able to enjoy that, that rest of it. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I wonder if I can ask you a little bit more, you know, I think that substance use in general, obviously, is something that very much coincides with folks experiencing mood disorder symptoms. And so it sounds like, you know, maybe you didn't fully identify with with living with a substance use disorder, but what you got from the treatment, what you got from the wisdom of folks around you ended up really informing your perspective. When you look back on on the substance use now, and I guess for other young folks who are listening who may be struggling with that, like, do you want to say a little bit more about your your experience? Like, in in your mind now, like, which came first, the mood stuff or substance use, or di- were they in relation with each other? It can be hard to extricate them, and that's a lot of why I found it so hard, especially as time went on, to want to even acknowledge any of any of that period. Uh, and possibly because I was um, afraid of kind of seeing uh, the truth of it or because it kind of wasn't worth the, the anguish of, uh, you know, was this really the case or what if this, um, but if I, I I think it was the case that uh, drinking for the first time uh, preceded the mood disorder. Um, And I think that might've had to do with, yeah, just alcohol being uh, a depressant. And so there, there was definitely something underlying for sure, you know, maybe not having felt the space to kind of experience uh, severe emotions in high school, you know, being in that environment, uh, still being around my parents, it, it could have been something like that, but also, um, yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, I, I know mood disorders are often triggered by changes in, uh, environments. And so it could have been, you know, moving away from home for the first time to go to college. And so it could have been kind of that or, um, you, you know, drinking for the first time and maybe some combination of the two. So towards the end of your letter, and what I love is that it feels like there's such a bookmark um, between the beginning and the end, because by the end, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit more about what what were the things that happened that made you shift, especially your perspective on the wellness center, because it really sounds like in the beginning you were you were not having it with the wellness center at all. But then we get this nice book at the end, bookend at the end, where you then go and actively uh, want to work alongside the wellness center and, and you seek out help there. So can you talk a little bit about where the disdain from the wellness center came in the beginning? And then, and then yeah, how, how did you make that shift to then become such a mental health advocate as you go on to write? 
I changed my my perspective on the well-being and counseling centers at my university um, not long after I I returned, you know, uh, for the start of my my sophomore year, and it was because while while away while back home, I realized that I hadn't taken taken advantage of all the things that I may have may have wanted to during that first semester uh, due to my my condition, and I kind of educated myself on all of the kind of uh, groups, especially relating to mental health advocacy that I now cared about uh, so that I could kind of join them. And so, you know, joined uh, committees, extracurriculars affiliated with that, just to try and uh, try and see if I could make a difference in people's experiences, um, not even just with with dealing with with administration or with those centers, but just being able to kind of before all that help people experiencing um, you know mental illness for the first time uh, provide support networks that I wasn't aware of, and um, I think some of that also had to do with just meeting people in those similar scenarios. I felt so alone that first semester as if I was kind of the odd one out for being so severely depressed and, you know, looking at, at others and thinking, you know, they're, they're also here at college for the first time and they're, you know, doing all these things that I wish I could enjoy. But, you know, it's, it definitely is common, uh, both at my university and all around. And I'm grateful for the chance to have met so many people that can relate. Uh, and my, to get to your question, my relationship specifically with those centers kind of changed in that, in those, those leadership roles, you know, you have to work intimately with those centers. And so I got to, to know, like, especially the director of, of the wellbeing center and kind of see and appreciate uh, what they do with the resources that they have and seeing their constant attempts at meeting student needs, you know, uh, but also recognizing that student input is so valuable in them better understanding uh, how they can help students. And so I did really feel like I was making a difference uh, in providing that, that input, serving kind of like student needs and ad advocating for them on that basis. And uh, tangible change has been made as a result of kind of uh, advocacy that I've led, um, both kind of introducing uh, new kind of awareness to, uh, you know, those centers and, and kind of administration, but, but also accelerating things that were already on the table. Uh, and that experience ended up serving me personally too, in that, you know, over those, those next two to three years, uh, gaining that, that trust with them after coming from a perspective of feeling kind of betrayed in, 
in feeling like I was uh, failed both in kind of like the counseling that I had to do and kind of uh, being sent away, especially uh, my notes from the that counseling being used to kind of justify why I was kind of a liability and should be sent away. Um, so kind of uh, that time and those collective experiences uh, built that trust back. And when I first started presenting with symptoms of bipolar disorder, I felt like I was I was comfortable to finally return. And it's it's been so good for me. That's it's it's amazing to hear. Yeah, the complete 180. And I feel like, you know, with so many um peer experiences that that we've heard at TBSA, like you, you do get to the point where if you're able to turn around and you know do something with with advocacy or with advancing um help for others and you're able to see it in other students, it can be so empowering because you because you've been there and you've been through that time period. So it's really awesome to see just kind of what a, a journey you're on. I feel like I get the sense of pride that you that you share in in your letter for for where you've been and, and then where you go too. So that's awesome. So you have actually already chosen your title for this episode. You titled it "I'm Living Proof We Carry Each Other," and I'm wondering if you could just say a bit more about why you chose that title. I specifically mentioned it in my letter relating to the period when I I was back home and I did feel like those support networks of the friends that I had made uh, were lost, but uh, kind of I ended up having like a a rotation of, you know, like at least like, uh, you know, like six to 10 friends that I would, I would call like very often and they would be so kind of sympathetic just to any kind of thing that I would want to talk about or frustration or wanting to hear about, uh, you know, how their semester was going um, and what it was like and kind of having and maintaining those those friendships kind of got me through it right thinking this is what's kind of waiting for me when I get back and I am I, I've increasingly kind of understood what it's like to um, and how to form kind of you know, mutually supportive relationships with, with friends where, you know, you don't kind of just, you know, come to them when you, you're feeling kind of like bad yourself or need someone to talk to, but being empathetic to kind of like what is going on with them for sure. Like, you know, you can take turns, uh, carrying each other for sure. Um, and, you know, get good at recognizing when they're okay, when they're not okay. Yeah, I think that that definitely encapsulates how I've kind of gotten to the point being uplifted by friends and also kind of feeling like I've made a, a tangible difference in their life experiences too, as, as they have in mine. Well, I definitely get that sense through your letter, you know, and I think start starting school and getting such a strong group of friends to carry you through. It's such a it's such a new time period, but it sounds like that is the through line in, in your letter. And that's such a beautiful thing. And I think especially when we can connect with folks and normalize around mental health. So it sounds like that was very much a part of your experience. So that is awesome. 
Um, James, I'm wondering what are some things that you do now for your wellness after you've gone? It's, so it sounds like we've, have we moved on from, from undergrad yet? Moved on from Yeah, so, so I'm now at graduate school at the same university. So it's, it's so nice to get to maintain many of those friendships with people who are still there and get to make, get to make new ones feel in a familiar environment. Yeah. That's awesome. And so what are you doing now to support your wellness or what are some things, some wellness tips that you might share with, with our audience? Yeah, I think this may be more the case now in, in the past year after having symptoms of bipolar disorder where I have been rapidly cycling, like fully cycling every kind of like five to six weeks at, at points where it would kind of fall into a pattern. Even even if that's not the case for people, it's in, in maintaining those those mutually uplifting relationships, it's so useful to kind of try and and either make plans with friends in in advance or just kind of have recurring things that you do uh, with friends that you can kind of see like, oh, I am my company is enjoyed here. And if I kind of like start feeling down, I can kind of tell myself that and decide like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go to this thing because every time I do, I feel really good. And that is what I need right now, but also kind of being communicative with friends uh, and having those kind of patterns with those, those close friends uh, allows you to tell them if you need space, you know, so you don't feel kind of obligated to uh, do the things with them that you'd said you you wanted to do um, and they can be understanding, right? So those open lines of communication are so useful. That's also the case um, with kind of disclosing uh, my condition to, uh, you know, a handful of close friends so they can kind of uh, not be, not be confused if, my my mood kind of uh, changes, and I decide, you know, they're wondering like, oh, you know, where where am I? Why am why am I kind of not? You know, why are they not seeing me? Uh, and they can know kind of like, oh, it's it's because uh, this changed, and you know, I can I can reach out, um, or they can understand why I'm kind of saying odd things. <laughs> and and you know kind of having those um the classic like grandiose thoughts or making like a ton of plans and being ambitious um the disclosing is really helpful with people that you trust totally totally because then they know about your experience they can kind of understand what you're going through and it sounds like you've established a lot of really awesome relationships that are healthy and full of like, here's what I'm going through and, and here's how you can support me, which is always what we like to hear, especially when it comes to the, the social supports and wellness that we have. So I'm really, I'm really happy that, that you have that right now. I'm glad you're in grad school. That sounds awesome. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, James, for sharing um, your experience with us. Is there any other question I didn't ask you or anything else you'd like to share with, with our audience today? Yeah, I think 
I think I want to take this chance to uh, kind of uh, draw draw awareness to how people can, you know, aid in dismantling the stigma around uh, suicidality. In that, from from my experience, it it feels like the case that people wonder why, you know, why people are are kind of crying out for kind of like any kind of help like from their friends thinking that maybe it's uh, a burden and not that I can tangibly say that that I've specifically experienced that but it definitely seems to be the case uh, in general but I, I feel like people who are are suicidal are kind of seen you know again like as an inconvenience but if they do die people think like wow, I, I wish there was something that I could have done. I wish that they had kind of like been more communicative. Why, why weren't they? Um, and that kind of attitude is kind of what leads people to not want to be communicative, feeling burdensome like that. Um, in fact, like, you know, just like I said, that that whole hospitalization experience was really traumatizing um now and again like even even when dealing with that same hospital system or dealing with like the the counseling center again like you know things relating to um that hospitalization will kind of like crop up in notes and stuff and it's definitely the case that the thing that i kind of said most when you know i was like just brought in and was like incoherent was that I felt like such a burden to kind of everyone that I, I knew. And I would just kind of keep saying that nonstop. Um, and um, I think, you know, having affirmations that counter that uh, is so important as well as kind of like being willing to listen to uh, friends who are kind of in that state. I definitely do also recognize that a lot of the people um, that were around me during that time, you know, were barely adults themselves, like me, and aren't equipped with um, those kind of experiences, right? Just as I was kind of confused by what, what I was experiencing, you know, friends and sweetmates would kind of not know how to kind of like talk to me, you know, if I'm if I'm really depressed and, you know not leaving my room, is that because uh, I don't want to be bothered, you know, or is that because I really need someone to kind of pull me out of it and be willing to talk to me? And that's, that's really hard to kind of uh, be able to know without, without kind of conversations around mental health. I love that takeaway. You are not a burden. Everyone who's listening right now know that you are worthy and worth um, all of the help and all of the love. And there are people and there are organizations who can support you through it. James, thank you so much again for being with us and sharing um, this beautiful letter about your experience. Um, it's been such an honor to, to talk to you about it and to get, you know, to get to know you here today. So thank you again. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Your reviews really help us out 
and we appreciate them. If you feel inspired and want to submit your own letter, head over to dbsalliance.org slash imlivingproof. This episode was hosted by DBSA Programs Manager, Hannah Zeller, and Digital Communications Manager, Dante Freeman. You can support DBSA and more shows like this one by making a gift today. Head over to dbsalliance.org slash donate. Your support can help make sure that no one feels alone. Thank you.